Hi there, and welcome to the Benzo Conversation, a podcast for nurse practitioners who want to learn how to talk to patients about safe benzodiazepine use. First, I will provide a brief historical context on the state of benzodiazepine prescribing practices in the U.S. Then I will share with you why I care so much about this and why maybe you should too. Next, I will share a clinical pathway for assessment and management of patients on chronic benzodiazepines. We will discuss therapeutic interview strategies providers can use to help patients become engaged in the tapering process. And we'll end with a simulated interview, which will model some ways that providers can roll with resistance when a patient really, really doesn't want to hear what you're saying. So if this sounds like something that would be interesting to you, keep listening. in uncertain and stressful times. Even as I'm recording this, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Our environments can be really stressful, and life gets really difficult when you add in COVID-19, and mass shootings, and deaths of loved ones, and breakups of important relationships. As anyone who's been under a significant amount of stress knows, Whether it's from a divorce, a job loss, a breakup, or unimaginable grief, anxiety can take over your body and make you feel physically sick. As providers, we're wired to want to help people feel better. And humans have been developing methods to help people cope with uncomfortable emotions for a very long time. In the past, people used barbiturates for anxiety, but those had a lot of undesirable side effects and risks. If you've seen Wolf of Wall Street, then you know what I'm talking about. In 1960, benzodiazepines were introduced to the world as mother's little helper. Their popularity waxed and waned over the next couple of decades and then spiked again in the late 90s. Since the early 2000s, benzo prescriptions have steadily increased from 4 million to 8 million prescriptions a year. There are explicit guidelines stating that benzodiazepines are meant for short-term use. That's two to four weeks. But it turns out the recent increase in benzo prescriptions was driven by continued long-term prescriptions, with only 20% of users reporting short-term use of benzodiazepines. interested in this topic and why do I care so much? I'm a nurse on an inpatient psychiatric unit and I've watched the devastating effects of benzo withdrawal countless times. I remember the first time I saw a patient be tapered quickly off of clonopin. She was a woman about my age and the withdrawal caused her to have severe akathisia. Akathisia is a condition where the sufferer feels an irresistible restlessness. The feeling creates constant repetitive movements, like pacing, rocking back and forth, or swaying. This patient could not stop moving. She couldn't sleep. She kept saying, I'm vibrating on the inside. I'm gonna crawl out of my skin. She was pacing up and down the halls constantly. People describe akathisia as torturous. There are videos on YouTube that people have posted of the akathisia that their loved ones experience during benzo withdrawal as a warning to others. It's hard to watch someone come off of benzos. The restlessness, the agitation, just the sheer suffering. 
The most common symptoms of benzo withdrawal include muscle pain, anxiety, depression, and insomnia. But people even report GI problems, visual disturbances, headaches, flu-like symptoms, sweating, pain in their neck and shoulders, teeth, and jaw, balance problems, loss of coordination, shaking, palpitations, inner trembling, nightmares, and derealization. Unfortunately, this woman's story was not unique. She started Clonopin PRN after a bad breakup. It helped her get through the day, to remain calm at work, and to sleep at night. But her life became more stressful. One of her parents got sick, and she was trying to grow her business. Pretty soon, she started taking Clonopin every day, and it was helping. When that dose stopped working, she asked her primary care provider to increase it. And they did. After a while, the medicine just stopped working entirely, and she found that her baseline anxiety became even worse than it was before, even though she was taking the pills multiple times a day, every day. This process of building tolerance can take a few years of daily use, a few months, or even just a few weeks. In a similar fashion to opioids, chronically used benzodiazepines require a higher dose over time to achieve the same effect placing the patient and prescriber in a difficult situation. Despite the opioid epidemic, benzodiazepines, which are present in 67.5% of opioid overdose deaths, continue to be a mainstay in treatment for people with chronic pain. Having high quantities of benzos in the community doesn't just harm the people with the prescription. The number of kids overdosing on benzos like Xanax, Valium, and Ativan has risen dramatically during the past 10 years. Child and teenage overdose deaths caused by benzodiazepines increased by 54% between 2000 and 2015. Opioid prescribing has gone down steadily since 2011 with implementation of prescription drug monitoring programs and state laws like the STOP Act. In contrast, the prescribing trends of benzodiazepines and sedative hypnotics more than doubled between 2003 and 2015. definitely not the only one who's concerned about the benzodiazepine problem. In response to the growing public awareness of the harms that benzos can cause, professional alliances and patient support groups have sprung up. This includes the Benzodiazepine Coalition, the National Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, the American Psychiatric Association's Benzodiazepine Task Force on Benzodiazepine Dependence, Toxicity, and Abuse, the United Kingdom's Battle Against Tranquilizers, and a popular global online support forum called BenzoBuddies.org. There are several podcasts and even books devoted to this topic created by patients who are documenting their tapering journey. In October 2019, CNN aired a special about the effects of benzodiazepine prescription on This Is Life with Lisa Ling which illuminated the stories of individuals suffering through difficult benzo withdrawal. Okay, so what can we do? I reviewed literature and interviewed providers, including psychiatrists, primary care providers, and psychiatric nurse practitioners. I even informally interviewed patients. 
I learned about different philosophies and approaches to prescribing benzodiazepines, and there are varying schools of thought. Some providers I talk to feel that long-term benzo use just really isn't that big of a deal, while other providers, wary of their many risks, just don't prescribe benzos at all, ever. The majority of providers I interviewed think that benzodiazepines can be a useful tool in times of crisis, but that there should be a clear plan in place for how and when they will be tapered. When I asked one psychiatrist what he thought about short-term benzo use, he said, sure, that sounds great in theory, but that never happens in practice. A current Kaiser Permanente guideline, last approved in 2019, states that benzodiazepines are not recommended for long-term use. They define long-term use as longer than two weeks. The only exception given is if a patient is terminally ill. The guideline clearly states that there is no evidence to support chronic use of these drugs for insomnia or any mental health indication. Guidelines also say that patients should be encouraged to discontinue use of long-term benzodiazepines, especially those in the high-risk category. The following are criteria that would place a patient in the high-risk category. Being prescribed benzos concomitantly with a hypnotic or an opioid. Being over the age of 65 or under the age of 25. Use of alcohol or cannabis. History of a substance use disorder. History of overdose. PTSD. Problems following the benzo care plan. Patients who are at risk for respiratory depression. And patients who are at risk for falls. Studies show that for most people in primary care settings, even a minimal intervention, such as a letter with self-help information from the treating provider, or even just one brief consultation, can be effective in reducing or stopping benzodiazepine use. For patients who don't want to stop the drugs, discuss the benefits of stopping, and set the expectation of revisiting the topic at least once a year. I distilled the information I learned from interviews, my own clinical experiences, and current guidelines into a clinical pathway to assist providers in conducting the benzo conversation with patients on chronic benzodiazepines. Okay, so here's the clinical pathway. The first step is to investigate. If a patient is coming to you asking for a continuation of a long-term benzo prescription, you have to figure out why they're not getting it from their previous provider. So you can check their past medical records, check the prescription monitoring database, see if they're filling prescriptions from multiple providers. The second step is to assess their symptoms. This will give you a clearer picture of why the patient is taking a chronic benzodiazepine. Some tools you can use include the GAD-7 and the ISI, or the Insomnia Severity Index. Common reasons patients get started on benzodiazepines are for sleep, anxiety, and grief. Ask the patient to describe their symptoms in detail and use the symptom scales as needed to determine symptom severity. It's also important to rule out medical causes first, as you know, and ask the patient questions about their substance use, sleep patterns, and caffeine intake as these lifestyle factors can cause or worsen anxiety. Okay, step three, and this part is really important. Ask the patient what they know about the medication they're taking, and then ask them if anyone has ever told them about the risks of long-term use. 
This is your opportunity to assess the patient's knowledge of the medication, as well as any emotional attachment they may have developed towards it. Listen to what they say during this part of the conversation. You may find that they do not know about the long-term risks or current recommendations for benzo use. Or they may know a lot about the risks, but want to continue taking the benzos anyway. You can use this time to educate the patient about the current recommendations and let them know whether or not they're in a high-risk category. This is also a good time to validate the patient. It's understandable that they've developed a preference for a medicine that really helped them at one point. And often people don't realize the negative effects that benzos are having on them until after they come off of them. So you may have noticed that I emphasized asking the patient what they know instead of telling them what you know. This was a mistake I often made as a floor nurse. I would just start telling the patient all the risks I knew and how important it was that they stopped taking the medicine. And I was pretty much always successful in disengaging a patient from wanting to talk to me about their benzo use. I have since learned that asking the patient what they know is a much more valuable way to start a conversation. All right, time for step four. Ask the patient if they've ever considered tapering down. After hearing more about the risks of long-term use, you may be surprised how many people are actually open to the idea of tapering. So if the patient seems like they're on board with this, you can then engage them in the tapering conversation. Reassure them that you will taper them very slowly and with their input. Ask them what their concerns are and address those specific concerns. Like maybe they're worried they won't be able to sleep. And in that case, you can reassure them that there are other medications for sleep that are safe to use in the long term. Also, remember that there are interventions for sleep that have nothing to do with medication. Sleep hygiene education really can make a world of difference for some people. For patients in agreement, you can begin the taper. A generally accepted tapering method is to reduce the dose by 25% every two weeks. But remember the tolerability of this is likely to vary between patients. Reassure the patient that you'll work with them on determining the speed of the taper. If they're still adamant that they really don't want to taper down, just make sure you ask them what are their biggest concerns about tapering down to really distill what it is that they're most worried about and try to provide them reassurance wherever you can. After all of this, some patients will still be unwilling to taper. In this case, set clear expectations and goals using a benzodiazepine contract and care plan. Primary care and pain providers often do this formally with a written and signed contract. You can include the following information in your contract. We discussed with the patient our concerns around chronic benzodiazepine use. Specifically, we discussed that benzodiazepines are a drug of abuse, long-term benzodiazepines are not effective at reducing anxiety, benzodiazepines are linked to impaired memory, combining benzodiazepines with alcohol or opiates may be fatal, we are to be the only provider of benzodiazepines and will be monitoring the controlled substances database, we will not fill early refills for lost prescriptions or missing pills, Notification that you are diverting the substance will be a just cause for us to stop prescribing. You should not drive or operate heavy machinery after taking benzodiazepines. 
We reserve the right to drug test you at any time to ensure compliance, and failure to abide by this contract will result in us prescribing a rapid taper and terminating future controlled substances prescribing. The following simulated interview will showcase a patient who's very resistant to the idea of tapering off of Xanax and will demonstrate some of the methods I have discussed. Hi there, how are you doing? What can I help you with today? Hi, uh, I just moved here and I need a refill of my Xanax prescription. I'm trying to find a job and I, I have really bad anxiety. Okay, well, thanks for coming in. Let me get a little bit more information so I can see what I can do to help you. Where did you receive your previous care? Uh, I just moved from Ohio. I got my prescription from a clinic there. My, my last doctor retired and didn't give me any refills on my prescription. Xanax is really helpful for me, but I only have like two pills left. All right, would you sign a consent for me to request records from that clinic? Uh, sure, yeah, that's fine. Tell me a little bit more about your experience of anxiety. Well, I kind of just always have had anxiety, uh, like for pretty much my whole life. And Xanax is like the only thing that works. I see. So how long have you been prescribed this and what dose? Uh, I, I've been taking uh, one milligram three times a day, uh, probably for the past uh, three years or so. Have you ever tried any other medications for your anxiety? Zoloft didn't work. They put me on like 25 milligrams of that last year. I was still always just anxious. I took it for like two months and it just didn't work at all. I'm trying to get a job, but I can't even go to interviews because my anxiety is so bad. Yeah, I can see this is a really tough situation for you. I want to figure out the best way I can help you. Since you've been out of the Xanax, what have you been doing to cope with your anxiety? No coping skills work for me. I, I've, I've done them all. Deep breathing, meditation, none of them. I have to take the Xanax for them to be able to work. Are you taking any medicines that are not prescribed to you, like anything over the counter? I know sometimes people seeking relief will also borrow medicines from family or friends. Sometimes I take NyQuil at night to help me sleep. Uh, when things get really bad, I'll borrow Xanax from my mom. I never take more than four to five pills a day though. That would be my absolute max. And I usually just take three a day. I'll only take more if it's an emergency uh, and, and I'm, I'm really stressed out. All right, are you using alcohol or marijuana for anxiety relief? No alcohol. Uh, I, I've been sober for, for five years. I used to smoke pot like two or three times a week, but I stopped that a couple of months ago. Have you ever been hospitalized in the past for your anxiety or depression or anything like that? No. Have you ever had a time in your life where you considered suicide? Uh, I've had some times when I've, I've had bad depression and, and anxiety and I didn't want to have to go through that anymore. That's why I'm coming in for help now. And have you had any thoughts like that recently? Not right now, but I could see myself getting to that point. That's why I came here for help. All right. Did, did you fill out the GAD7 and PHQ9? Uh, yeah. Yeah, he, here they are. Okay. Based on your scores on these, it sounds like you're really suffering a lot right now with your anxiety. And even the doses of Xanax you're taking don't seem to be helping too much. No, they help. Trust me. I, I, I would be feeling a lot worse without it. So I, I'm going to need uh, my, my, my prescription 
today. I have a job interview coming up. Uh, I don't know why everyone is so reluctant to just give me the medicine that I need. Well, that's a really good question. You bring up a good point. Do you know about the ways that long-term use of this type of medication can affect you? Yeah, people say it's addictive, but I've been sober for years. And and part of the reason I've been able to stay sober is because of this medicine. Yeah, you know, you're right that developing tolerance and dependence is one of our concerns with this type of medication. Tolerance is when the same dose becomes less effective over time, requiring a higher dose, which is actually quite common with this type of medicine. Dependence is when you start to feel like you can't function normally without the medication. Being dependent on this medication can cause problems for you. For example, if you ever need to have surgery and require opiate pain medication, because this type of medication can be lethal in combination with Xanax. And as you get older, if you're still taking it at this rate, it's been shown to contribute to cognitive decline and falls. Harvard actually just published a study showing a strong link between long-term use of these medications and dementia. Um, Xanax has a really rapid onset of action and usually a beneficial effect and it's well tolerated, so I can definitely understand why you've developed a preference for this. For someone with chronic anxiety like yourself, though, it's been shown to lead to dependence, rebound anxiety, problems with memory, and worsening depression. And from what you've described to me, it sounds like you have started to build up a tolerance to this dose as you've been requiring more medication, and your symptom scales are still indicating that you're suffering from anxiety a great deal. Well, I I get that. (laughs) But you can't just take me off of it. I've had a seizure before, about a year ago. It happened last time I ran out of it. You're right. This is not a medication that you can just stop cold turkey. Have you ever tried to taper before? No. Just stop that one time when I ran out and and I had a seizure. I, I don't really see the point of tapering off of something that works for me. Do you know what benefits might come to you if you reduce the dose of your medication? What benefits? Well, a lot of people say that they feel like they get their brain back because they're able to think so much clearer after recovering from benzodiazepine dependence. People also often say their mood improves and they actually feel better. Did you know that a gradual taper can actually be done over a period of weeks or months and you could minimize withdrawal symptoms and ultimately lead you to a healthier life? How would that be done? Well, we would go down on your dose very slowly to keep you as comfortable as possible. I would monitor your symptoms closely, and there are also medications I could prescribe for you in the interim to manage your withdrawal symptoms and help with things like sleep and anxiety that are safe and effective. So if I agree to a taper, then you'll prescribe them to me? Yeah, so there are a number of steps I would need to take, including checking the controlled substance reporting system, obtaining a urine drug screen. This is just the standard of care for any patient prescribed a benzodiazepine. Then we would go over a benzodiazepine contract together. I'd like to treat your chronic anxiety by helping you get onto a medication that you can safely take over the long term. I know Zoloft didn't work for you at that dose, but there are other things we can try. If this is something you can imagine doing, I, would, I could really gradually take, taper you off of Xanax, and I would do this very slowly with your input. Okay, what, what does the contract say? Okay, let me go get it and we'll go over it together. So that simulation is just one example of a benzo conversation. And your interview will obviously need to be tailored to fit your personal style. But I do want to touch on a few of the techniques I used and questions that I asked. 
In my interviews with providers, some identified that there are certain situations where they just feel more pressure to continue benzo prescriptions against their better judgment. After all, we are all human, and it's hard when we don't feel we have much at our disposal to help someone's situation. The interview showcased examples of three of the common pressures providers can feel from patients. The first one was when the patient alluded to feeling suicidal without the medication. Remember when he said, I have felt suicidal before and that's why I'm coming in for help now because I could see myself getting to that point? This is not a reason for the provider to panic and give him what he asks for, but it is a reason to do a more in-depth assessment and refer him to a behavioral health provider or potentially to an inpatient unit, depending on his level of risk. The second pressure was when the patient said he had been sober for five years because of the medication. Some providers I interviewed said, well, I'd rather the patient take Xanax than drink. I think it's important to remember that those are not the patient's only two options. Concern about his sobriety is not necessarily a good reason to continue prescribing benzos at this rate, but it is a good reason to refer to more focused substance abuse treatment. Three, saying that if he did not get the medication, he would have a seizure. That's concerning, yes, and this is why we taper slowly. We certainly don't want him to have a seizure. One problem that providers have said they run into is when a patient agrees to a taper, but then doesn't show up for their next appointment, or calls for an early refill saying there's an emergency, or that it's just a really bad time to do a taper. And this is understandable. Things happen in people's lives, of course. But this is where the benzo contract comes in. In the event that someone does not show up for their follow-up appointment, a rapid taper is prescribed and the person is given enough medication to safely taper down. These limits are important. It's our responsibility as nurse practitioners to educate and provide clear limits and expectations. We have to remember that as humans, it's inevitable that we will suffer emotionally. It's a part of our makeup and it's a part of life. Benzos can be appropriate and effective when used in the short term but we have to remember that they have a really strong potential to ultimately make things worse. As nurse practitioners, it's our responsibility to engage patients in the benzo conversation, make sure that they're making fully informed decisions and use our better judgment, even when it's tough. So that's it. That's what I've learned about the benzo conversation. And hopefully you learned something too. My hope for this podcast is that it serves as a springboard for discussion among you, your classmates, and nurse practitioners in the community. I want us to think deeply about when, why, and how we use benzodiazepines, how to address barriers and challenges, and how we can ultimately improve the well-being of our patients in a sustainable way. Thanks for listening.